Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is a crowd podcast. Pat Tillman certainly looks the part. Anvil jaw, those dark, piercing eyes, that dimpled smile. Shoulders broad enough to eat your dinner off. If you were asked to design a superhero to save America, he'd probably look like Pat. No wonder the politicians wanted him as a poster boy. But here's the problem. What Pat looks like and who he really is are two very different things. When Pat quits American football to join the army, that's when he becomes a cliché. Who quits playing in the NFL to go and fight terrorists in Iraq and Afghanistan? He must be a true patriot, right? A little bit dumb? Actually, no. Pat isn't one of those jocks you get in high school movies. He reads poetry and the Quran and the Communist Manifesto. Whisper it quietly. He doesn't believe in God. But when you're trying to score political points and get the country behind controversial wars, that kind of stuff doesn't help. Complicated doesn't even begin to cover Pat Tillman. This is a man who isn't particularly big or quick, yet somehow he becomes a star in the NFL. He fights tooth and nail to make it into professional sport, then decides it doesn't amount to much and chucks it all in for something more meaningful. So here's what we need to unpick. How does such a quirky kid end up in the military? What kind of person gives up sport and all that money to risk getting killed in some far-off land? What kind of people would want to cover up his death? Was Pat a hero or just a naive pawn? And what could Pat do now when politics and sport are so mixed up? We'll come to that after this break. This is Death of a Sports Star. We have new episodes every Monday and they're all different, but this Pat Tillman episode might be the most different of all. We start in Afghanistan because that's where the story really begins. 
Pat must know it's a bad situation. The vehicle his platoon has been towing is broken up and going nowhere. His first lieutenant, David Utlau, the platoon leader, is getting twitchy. Him and his boys are sitting ducks, stuck on a dirt road in Afghanistan, not far from the Pakistan border, prime Taliban country. The locals seem friendly enough, but what if the bad guys get wind? Utlau requests a helicopter to come and lift the vehicle to safety. Solve the problem itself, comes the reply. A local tow truck driver appears, as if by magic. He offers to tow the vehicle to the nearest highway. Utlout tells his company commander back at base, the plan is given the go-ahead. Utlout thinks it's madness and says so. Why would he divide his firepower and accept help from a stranger? But his superiors overrule him. Utlout splits his platoon into two. One group will escort the vehicle to a rendezvous point on the highway. The other will carry on to the village of Mana, where they'll carry out house-to-house -house searches and hopefully find some weapons. Maybe they'll find some enemy fighters. There's a platoon joke that one day Pat will wander off and return with Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein under each arm. On the football field, Pat was all about seek and destroy. As a soldier, his comrades think he's not much different. Pat is in the forward party heading to Manor. His brother Kevin is a few minutes behind, heading for the highway. The mountain road is narrow and snaking, and the progress is slow. Suddenly, Pat's group hear an explosion coming from behind them. It sounds like mortar fire or a rocket-propelled grenade. Pat and his mates leave their vehicles and run back towards the canyon. This is Pat's moment. What he's been yearning for, his destiny. Pat and his team scramble up a hillside and take up firing positions. But when the besieged convoy emerges from the canyon, Pat and his team come under heavy fire. An Afghan fighter attached to Pat's platoon is hit and killed. Pat waves his arms and shouts, cease fire! He bangs the ground with his hands and screams, I am Pat fucking Tillman, damn it! I am Pat fucking Tillman! He tells a panicking comrade to shut up and stop snivelling. He tells him God isn't going to help him. This all comes out later. Who knows what's true and what isn't? And then, Pat's dead. Shot three times through the forehead. Pat's memorial service takes place 11 days later in his hometown of San Jose. His family don't want ministers or prayers, which confuses some in the army. It's bad enough there was no military funeral or ceremony. What kind of patriot is this? Instead, Pat's body was cremated and scattered into the Pacific. Kind of like a hippie send-off. 
Senator John McCain's eulogy is about duty, honour, patriotism and God. When Pat's younger brother Richard steps up, he's holding a pint of Guinness. One of the first things he says, Pat's not with God, he's fucking dead. Pat's death is good timing for President Bush because things aren't going well in Iraq. A week earlier, news broke about abuse of prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison. The campaign to take Fallujah from jihadis is falling apart. US casualties are mounting. Bush's approval ratings are falling fast. This is Bush's chance to spin a tale of heroic sacrifice. How evil must these people be that they'd kill America's most famous soldier? Conservative commentator Ann Coulter, one of the loudest cheerleaders for the Iraq war, calls Pat an American original, virtuous, pure and masculine, like only an American male can be. Pat's family and friends cringe. He's gone from cliché to cartoon. The wake lasts two weeks. They've got a lot of stories to tell. There's the one where a few days after graduating from high school, Pat jumps in to defend a friend and punches the wrong guy. Pat only gets caught because he leaves his name and number, but still winds up in a juvenile detention centre. There's the one where Pat's friends talk him out of diving off a cliff, but because he can't stand being beaten, even by a cliff, he returns to the same spot two weeks later and performs a swan dive backwards. Naturally, there's a lot of talk about football. Pat was a superstar at Leyland High School before getting a scholarship for Arizona State University. According to teammates, Pat played the game smart. Arizona Cardinals picked him up late in the 1998 NFL Draft. He was actually one of the last, and when he turned up to rookie camp, he'd already memorised the playbook. On the field, Pat put himself about like a lunatic. In 2000, he made 224 tackles, a team record. He was incredibly loyal. In 2001, he rejected a $9 million five-year offer to join the St. Louis Rams. Instead, he accepted a $500,000 one-year deal to stay in Arizona. But while Pat loved his football, friends and family knew he was more than a lovable meathead. He was polite, humble and sensitive. Writing soon after his death, Sports Illustrator said Pat was so at ease with himself, he could meet you wherever you were. But Pat was also a deep thinker and fiercely individual. He knew he was an atheist in high school. When his Cardinals teammates said prayers, he stood outside the circle. Yes, he seemed content, but he was thinking bigger. When Pat was 16, he wrote in his journal, I feel as though I am destined for glory, prestige, peace of mind, nirvana. Pat isn't exactly patriotic, but he has uncles and grandfathers who fought in wars and he's reaped the rewards of their sacrifices. American football has its challenges. It's no picnic, but it's just a game. He thinks war is the ultimate test of a man. Glorious. Nirvana.
9-11 terrorist attacks are the excuse he needs to do what a man needs to do. Pat's mum, Mary Tillman, gets it. But the fact none of these politicians ever served in the army makes her suspicious. What do they know of war? When she tries to warn Pat, he tells her he can't choose the administration he serves under. All he can do is hope they do the right thing. When Pat tells the Cardinals he's quitting to join the army, they offer him a $3.6 million contract extension. He turns it down. His brother Kevin, who is playing minor league baseball, enlists with him. In his last interview, Pat says, I really haven't done a damn thing as far as laying myself on the line is concerned. Pat turns down hundreds of other interview requests, including from Oprah Winfrey. He doesn't understand the fuss, but Pat's decision to turn his back on football and fight the war on terror is a propaganda coup for Bush and the Republican Party. If this guy is giving up his career as a superstar footballer, then it must be a just cause. That's pretty much the gist of things. The Pentagon says he can swerve the front line and go on a cheerleading tour of Europe and the Middle East instead. He declines. In April 2002, Pat marries his childhood sweetheart, Marie. Two months later, he leaves Arizona to start basic training. Some recruits think Pat's lost his mind. Why? When he could be earning millions in the NFL, why? but they soon get to like him. Pat is quiet about his football career, doesn't even mention he played unless he's asked. And he's quick to volunteer for scummy chores. He's also fun, he's eccentric. He likes to discuss the beat poetry of Allen Ginsberg, Winston Churchill, and the left-wing intellectual Noam Chomsky, his favorite writer. In March 2003, Pat and Kevin take part in the storming of Iraq. They see combat several times on their way to Baghdad. But Pat isn't sure the invasion is legit and soon realises the weapons of mass destruction they've been sent to find probably don't exist. At one point, he says to his brother Kevin and another comrade, this war is so fucking illegal. Pat and Kevin also take part in the operation to rescue Private Jessica Lynch. The army spin Lynch's rescue into an inspiring story of courage in the face of blazing gunfire. But it's a pack of lies. When Pat's platoon turned up, Iraqi forces had already fled. Lynch hadn't been stabbed or shot like the newspapers said, and she hadn't fought to the death. In fact, she never fired a shot. Instead, Iraqi doctors had kept her safe and simply handed her over to special forces. Pat studied marketing at Arizona State, so he's got a nose for propaganda. In his journal, he calls it a big public relations stunt. Back home, the Seattle Seahawks offer Pat a deal. They reckon they can swing him an early discharge because he's already served in a war zone. Pat thinks it over for a week before saying no. In November, Pat and Kevin graduate from the elite Army Ranger School. By early 2004, they're in Afghanistan, hunting for Taliban and Al-Qaeda operatives. This makes more sense. 
They say Bin Laden's out there somewhere, but Pat never does find him. On the 22nd of April, 2004, Pat is gunned down on that hill at the age of 27. Pat gets warm words from politicians. He also gets a glowing citation from the Pentagon, a purple heart, a silver star, and a promotion to corporal. The public think he's Rambo, but a few old comrades at Pat's memorial know there's been a cover-up. Pat didn't die in the line of devastating enemy fire, like his citation says. He was killed by his own side. And we'll talk more about that after this break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Death of a Sports Star. Five weeks after Pat Tillman's death, the Pentagon finally tell his family he was a victim of friendly fire. That stirring story told by the Navy SEAL at his memorial about Pat charging up a hill to defend his comrades and being cut down by a hail of enemy fire. It's not true. It's a relief to Pat's comrades who had been told to stay stum, but now there's a load of new questions. Was the delay deliberate, a chance for Republicans and pro-war media to bolster Pat Smith before all the facts came out? Turns out, two army investigations have already been carried out. And Pat's parents aren't convinced by the findings. Documents pile up on Mary Tillman's desk, covered in redactions and riddled with discrepancies. She's a special needs teacher by day, journalist, spokesperson, military analyst, and detective by night. An angry one at that. The Silver Star certainly hasn't appeased her. When President Bush pops up on a big screen at a Cardinals game, and calls Pat a fierce defender of liberty, it makes Mary even more determined to get the truth. Bush is up for re-election soon, and Mary thinks Bush is still using her boy as a pawn. Mary tells Sports Illustrated, they had no regard for Pat as a person. He would hate to be used for a lie. I don't care if they put a bullet through my head in the middle of the night, I'm not stopping. Mary distances herself from the anti-war movement, but she now has friends in high places. Senator McCain asks awkward questions at the Pentagon and a third probe is ordered. Now the truth comes tumbling out. At least some of it. Soldiers said it was common knowledge Pat had been killed by friendly fire. Army investigators knew Pat had been killed by his own side within days of his death. So did top officials, including Lieutenant General Stanley Crystal, who approved Pat's Silver Star citation. The same citation that made Pat sound like Rambo. 
Brigadier Howard Yellen told investigators Pat's death was viewed as a steak dinner delivered on a garbage can cover. And if top brass knew how Pat really died, is it really possible that President Bush didn't? One officer didn't seem to think any investigation was worth it because of Tillman's lack of religion. The first investigation into Pat's death, led by a captain from the same battalion, concluded officers should have been investigated for gross negligence, for ordering the platoon to be split and having to travel in daylight. It also recommended two gunners be punished for gross negligence and loss of control. That report was buried. A second investigation, led by a higher-ranking officer, called for less severe sanctions. And it gets worse. A lot, lot worse. The officer who carried out the initial investigation says soldiers' testimonies were changed. Apparently, the entire chain of command was involved to protect certain individuals. And yes, Pat's comrades, who knew the truth, were ordered to lie to his family at his memorial. The coroner refused to sign the initial casualty report because he suspected the enemy didn't have the skills to shoot three bullets so close together through a man's forehead. Pat's uniform and body armour were burned, as well as his notebook. Apparently, for hygiene reasons, and because they might upset his comrades. That armour, riddled with bullets, should have been evidence in a friendly fire investigation. The soldier who burned it said an investigation wasn't needed because they already knew what had happened. Some soldiers said they shot at Pat while their vehicle was still moving. How could that be, given the accuracy of the shooting? Others told the San Francisco Chronicle that at least two soldiers had dismounted and fired uphill. At least that made some sense. Captain William Saunders, who ordered platoon leader Utlaut to split his men, was allowed to change his testimony. That meant he dodged a perjury charge. Saunders was reprimanded, but still allowed to dole out punishments. He disciplined six soldiers, including Utlaut. Utlaut, who was hit in the face by shrapnel during the incident, was thrown out of the regiment. Russ Bayer, a comrade, has an idea whose fault it really was. Certainly not Utlaut's. Bayer tells the Chronicle why they thought moving us out in broad daylight, dragging a busted Humvee slowly through a known hotspot after we had been stranded there all day was a good idea, will forever elude me. Pat's dad, Patrick Tillman, is a lawyer, so he's used to sifting fact from fiction. Maybe lying's not a big deal anymore, he says. Mary Tillman says, you try to picture how did my child die, and it keeps changing. It's like Pat has died seven times in my head. The army finally admits it messed up by waiting so long to tell the Tillmans the truth. And in 2006, the Pentagon's Inspector General launches a criminal investigation. It finds that Pat's death was nothing other than accidental. More investigations and hearings follow, 
At one of them, Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld says he can't remember what he knew. Rumsfeld wrote Pat a letter when he enlisted, and Mary Tillman is convinced he's part of the cover-up. Heads would have rolled if they didn't tell Rumsfeld, she says. Testifying to a House committee, Kevin, Pat's brother, says, the deception surrounding this case was an insult to the family. But more importantly, its primary purpose was to deceive a whole nation. Once again, we have been used as props in a Pentagon public relations exercise. By this point, there's nothing Bush and his boys can say. They just have to soak it up. In 2007, the Associated Press forces the Defense Department to hand over more than 2,000 pages of testimony. More bad news for the Pentagon and Pat's family. They reveal Army attorneys sent each other congratulatory emails for keeping criminal investigators at bay. Medical examiners reckon the close proximity of the bullet holes in Pat's head raised serious doubts about the Army's version of events. There was no evidence of enemy fire found at the scene and no equipment was struck. The general who withheld details of Pat's death from his family told investigators he couldn't recall his actions. He did that something like 70 times. When he did recall stuff, he often contradicted other testimonies, sometimes even his own. The day after Pat's Silver Star was approved, another general tried to warn President Bush the story might be false. It's like that quote from Apocalypse Now, the bullshit piled up so high, you needed wings to stay above it. That film was about Vietnam, but it fits the war on terror. Things get muddier when a TV show suggests Pat might have been murdered. Were Pat's fellow soldiers jealous of his celebrity? Did they think he was cocky? Did they think he needed to be taken down a peg or two? We know from Pat's Iraq journal, he was critical of his superiors. The thing is, according to testimony from various investigations, Pat was liked and respected. But how do an elite bunch like the Rangers bump off America's most famous soldier? And what about those three tight bullet holes? Witnesses said the light was bad and that all they could see was vague shapes and muzzle fire. But a doctor reckoned Pat had been shot from less than 10 yards away. When it comes out, that Pat was planning to meet anti-war academic Noam Chomsky and maybe go public with his misgivings about Bush's war and terror, things get a bit JFK. America loves a conspiracy theory. In 2008, the findings of yet another investigation are released. The report, which covers Pat's death and the rescue of Private Jessica Lynch, doesn't actually accuse the army of a cover-up, but it might as well do. It says the investigation was frustrated by near-universal lack of recall among senior officials at the White House and in the military. It goes on. It is clear the Defence Department did not meet its most basic obligations in sharing accurate information with the families and with the American public. Here's Pat's mum again. The nation has been deceived. The fact he was the ultimate team player and he watched his own men kill him 
is absolutely heartbreaking and tragic. The fact they lied about it afterwards is disgusting. Years pass and Pat becomes just one small part of a colossal catastrophe. By the time Donald Trump becomes president, almost no one thinks the Iraq war was a good idea. When the Americans pulled out of Iraq in 2011, four and a half thousand of their soldiers had died, plus hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. They're still in Afghanistan. They found and killed Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, but would Pat have cared? Pat's family and wife Marie tried to keep a lid on the myth-making. Pat would have found it embarrassing. This is a man who didn't understand why Oprah Winfrey wanted to speak to him. He wasn't a flag-waving conservative Christian, and they're the only people who still seem to think those wars were a good idea. Marie sets up a foundation in his name. It helps get veterans and their spouses good educations. Roads, awards and football fields are named after him. His old teams retire his numbers. Teammates start growing their hair long, just like Pat had it before he joined the army. But no one bothers to update Pat's Silver Star citation so that it finally tells the truth. Some of the tributes are more problematic. In 2016, NFL players start kneeling during their national anthem to protest police racism and brutality. President Trump isn't impressed. In 2017, he shares a tweet that includes a picture of Pat and the words, hashtag stand for our anthem. Trump's critics think this is a bit rich. How can players kneeling during the anthem be an insult when politicians and the military already did so much to disrespect Pat's legacy? Suddenly, 13 years after his death, people are wondering what Pat might have done had he still been with us. Pat knew what the flag meant to Americans, but he was always open to different points of view. So people guessed on Pat's behalf. Would he have been down on one knee, one fist raised? Or would he have done his own thing when others thought he should have been doing something different? Whatever Pat might have done, it would have been the right thing for him. That we do know. And that's the story of Pat Tillman. It was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we used BBC Sport, BBC World Service, Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, The San Francisco Chronicle, The Intercept, The Guardian, USA Today, and The National Public Radio. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. Before we go, I have another podcast to recommend. It's called Murder in House 2, and it's Crowd Network's 10-part series about a group of Marines who killed 24 innocent people in a town called Haditha in Iraq. It's taken 15 years to make this podcast. It features secret recordings and some of the most powerful audio you'll ever hear. Search for Murder in House 2 in your podcast app. There'll be a new episode of Death of a Sports Star out every Monday. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on! Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.